Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Philosophy Guy. So, today's episode is an interview where I actually went on someone's podcast and I asked them if I could feature the audio on mine as well and also help them out because to help share their podcast. So, I went on Matthew Taylor's podcast and I'll have the link below to his show. So, it's a discussion, he's kind of leading the discussion with the interview. Um, and I really wanted to feature it on my feed as well because it is another discussion around the topic of consciousness. But when I had Philip Goff on, I feel like the audience probably, based on my other episodes in consciousness, realized that I share a lot of the same views as Philip Goff. So this interview was a lot of fun because we got into the similar discussion, but you kind of, you get the pushback because Matthew Taylor is a, he's a materialist. So we get that materialist perspective of consciousness pushing back on the more kind of I guess you could, I, I call myself in the interview a panpsychist. I, that's just kind of what I'm leaning towards right now. I don't like to, as you all know, I don't like to put myself with certain terms. But yeah, so it's a very good discussion. We got into some good depth and we also, I think, had an interesting conversation in the problems that are presented with both a materialist worldview, the an idealist worldview, the panpsychist worldview, and dualism. We get into all that and like kind of the, I think the almost like the pros and cons of those as well. And we also just had kind of, it flowed really, really nicely. It was a very enjoyable interview. So check out that link below as well to get, if uh, you know, hit up that podcast. And yeah, so also check out the Patreon page to help support the show. Rate me on iTunes, join the Discord. The bonus episode feed, uh, we recently had an episode, I recently did an episode on The Way of Jesus. Uh, what else did I do an episode on? This week, I'm going to do a more psychedelic-based episode. So yeah, check out the link below to check those out. But as always, thanks for listening, and enter the labyrinth. Hello, welcome to Proscenium. This is the regular get host, not guest host, Matthew. <laughs> Andrew can't make this recording. I scheduled this and then asked Andrew if he could make it, and unfortunately he couldn't. So that's a bad planning on my part. Apologies to Andrew. So, and apologies to listeners if you tune in for his voice because you'll only have mine today. And um, well, mine and the guest. So the guest I've got today is Brendan Weber, known from the Philosophy Guy podcast. Welcome, Brendan. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And the reason why I contacted you was I fell over your podcast a couple of weeks ago. I can't even remember how I came across it. It was probably from through another podcast, but I genuinely can't remember where or why. So, but anyway, I discovered your podcast a couple of weeks ago and I've hit as many of your back catalogue as I can. And you've had Philip Goff on your podcast, who I've had on this podcast talking about panpsychism. And uh, we had him being interviewed by a friend of this show who's been on a couple of times, Brian Blaze. And we had those two, um, I was going to say at loggerheads, it wasn't quite at loggerheads, but they were challenging e each other. And conversation mostly went around how, how can you have evidence for panpsychism? And the re response was along the lines of, well, materialism doesn't have any better evidence than panpsychism. So why do you think your proposal is any better than mine? So that's kind of how that conversation went. I loved having 
Philip on. I, I loved his book and I got from, I enjoyed listening to him talking with you. And I, I, the impression I got was you really enjoyed having Philip on as well. He's been on quite a few podcasts. He's a, he's a jolly decent chap, English, of course. Yeah. So I really enjoyed the conversation. And so that was one of the main reasons why I asked you on. So I wanted you to come on and have a little bit more of a, a talk about consciousness. Consciousness is a challenge. It is a difficulty in, in how to explain it. We've been arguing about it for, for decades and there's various different uh, philosophical positions to try to explain it. So I guess where I want to start with is let, let's start basics. How do we define consciousness philosophically? Is it any different from the way we define it scientifically? And what is the role of philosophers or people people like yourself who try to investigate uh, consciousness philosophically and what kind of progress are we making yeah so i mean the way i see consciousness and, and this is this is like you could almost do a whole <laughs> episode yes, on what consciousness is but the way i kind of like try to simplify it is i do think it involves kind of this sensory experience this this i guess you could almost say subjective experience in the sense that there is something experiencing what is going on and, and it's a lot of times, and we'll probably get into this, people like to insert that we look through it through the lens of the human experience of like how humans experience something such as, you know, feelings of anger or the feeling of seeing a mountain for the first time, right? Or like going out in nature and having that experience or driving a car for all these like various experiences. But then we also recognize that, for example, like animals have a different experience, but we still call them conscious, but it's like a different, we, we recognize it's different than ours, but it's still conscious. We don't really know what that is because that's kind of the, the topic of the question of consciousness is because we can't really know what it is because well, all we're really experiencing is our version of yeah. consciousness, which is that sensory experience of taking in those inputs and having, I mean, I don't know if I like to use the word to simplify this, but just like essentially I see it as like a feeling experience. When you say a feeling experience, you don't mean a, a tactile feeling experience. Because if I bite into right. an apple, I I feel the resistance of the apple as, as I bite through it. And I feel the texture right. of the apple inside my mouth through nerve endings. You don't mean that kind of feeling, do you? Right, right. It's definitely different. Because that's more of like a physical feeling or like that. Ex but it's still, I guess, even, even that, I guess you could say, is still a, you know, the sensory experience where... It is, it is affecting your consciousness in a way, but that's where it gets into the complicated issue of these like distinctions of what consciousness is from that. Because I still think it affects your consciousness, if that makes sense. Yes, it does, because we, we respond to the sensation of that texture. For example, if I was to give a tomato to my daughter, that will not end well because I know that she does not appreciate <laughs> that experience. I love biting into a fresh tomato. My, my daughter doesn't she she rejects any idea of of that because she just doesn't appreciate and she takes no pleasure from from that sensation uh, right whereas i do so that's kind of like a, a difference in our in our consciousnesses and and how we in, interpret that experience and we either go yay or nay on it exactly and i, I do think there's something about kind of our in instincts you know the the instinct for survival and all that and the ins and, and like something like biting into a fresh tom tomato that for some people that's a great experience and for others it's not and it's not something you really get to choose it's just something that 
that is your makeup of, I would say, consciousness because it's affecting your, like, how you, how do I say this? That experience, because it, it gets down to that, where it's like what you feel and what you experience when you do that determines if you like it or not. And and that's why, you know, when we get into this a little bit more, like kind of like the panpsychist position, is because I see how it like kind of fits those gaps, if that makes sense. I can always try to unpack that more. Um, yeah, I think we probably do, because I think um, uh, most of our listeners already know that I'm, I'm very much a... Uh, and materialist in the, these kinds of things. So I'm mm-hmm. seeking to try to understand how consciousness fits into that, because on the subject of biting, whether of biting into into a tomato and whether we like it, and as you kind of suggested, often that's not a choice that we make. It's a it's a preference that is either mm-hmm. inherited or or it's learned through through experience, and so that basically means that if it's inherited then that means it's something that's encoded into our dna we have no control over whether or not we like it and mm-hmm. as soon as we say it's encoded into our dna haven't we removed it from the realm of consciousness our body has got this encoding this sensation equals i don't like this spit it out and so when our brain detects that uh, sensation our brain has gone, ah, this is the no pile, spit it out. So it's an automatic reaction which is encoded into our body. And so consciousness gets no looking. Is is that a fair thing to say or am I have I missed something? No, that that's very fair. And that's actually so that, I think this is actually a good segue because that's basically exactly why I'm I lean towards panpsychism. I, I don't say like panpsychism is true. Because I do see some of the issues of, it's more of like, how do I say this? It's more of like we we look at it through an argumentation perspective instead of a scientific perspective. And we can kind of unpack what I mean there, but I kind of want to unpack what you said is what you, what you said is like exactly right. And that's where the materialist sees that as material, the material world, the physical world is causing those sensations. And then you also have the the opposite where you have the dualist and the the idealist where you know the dualist would say there's a separation between the mind and the body but then in this case it's better to point out what I, the idealist would say they would say everything is mind. So that that experience your your body is just an illusion what you're experiencing is what what is real in a sense. And I oversimplified we we can like get into that more if we want but I feel like <laughs> Philip got <Gopley laughs> covered a lot of that on this episode on your episode with him. But <clears throat> I want to like bring up that distinction because that's where I, I see panpsychism coming in as a possible and, and or possibly a, a likely filler of that gap. Because to me, the materialist, sure, you have the physical world, but it doesn't the physical world doesn't identify like what it is to be something, what it intrinsically or what it is to feel something. It doesn't really identify that experience. It's more of like what is observable. So that's where I like panpsychism because panpsychism still to me, and that's, this is what I like try to like to argue. And, and the other issue is there's a lot of various perspectives on what panpsychism is. But for me, at least, it is a, this kind of very nice hybrid between materialism and this kind of idealist perspective. And maybe you could throw in dualism. Um, but the way I see it is it kind of accounts for that experience that we don't really get to choose we just kind of have it that conscious experience that awareness 
that awareness to go and like create things and see things and, and seeing colors for the first time and all this stuff, it accounts for that because it's saying that, yes, there's the physical world, but maybe, and this is, and this is where I like to make the distinction, maybe it's possible that consciousness is within that those materials like and I, I know philip goff says this where you know down in the basic atom maybe the atoms have this basic level of consciousness and i like the view where you combine those atoms and those basic small amounts of consciousness i don't know if that's even the best way to say it but almost like this measurement style where you put them together like a puzzle and you get various forms of conscious experience and that's why animals have different conscious experience a mouse has a different conscious experience an elephant a dog all of them, we say they have a conscious experience, but we also say it's different than what ours is. But with the panpsychist position where we say it's down to the basic atom and you combine them and it creates these kind of various like puzzle pieces and creating this conscious experience, we have that same effect. So with that, with that idea that it's possible that it's in there like that, that's how we can account for these conscious experiences we have. And the reason I, I like to lean towards this position is because it's not like I'm just saying it's like, oh, we have no evidence for this, so like, why do you believe it? Well, then that's where I counter and say, well, the materialist doesn't really have evidence for the conscious experience. They're just observing what's happening. They're kind of, you know, it's, it's, I always bring up the example, and I hate to keep bringing up Philip Gobb, I'm just a huge fan of him as well. But the idea that science says, okay, we'll, we'll keep studying the mind, we'll keep, you know, neuroscience is continuing to make progress about how the brain works and all that. And then we'll understand how to like basically how to create consciousness. And I haven't seen the progress there. So that's where I have that issue. And I see this gap and I see the same gap with dualism and because dualism can't really account for how the mind and the body, like where does that interaction all of a sudden happen? I have a hard time separating those two so distinctively because it has like basically a similar issue to what materialism has, where there's this kind of experience this intrinsic experience they're not able to account for. And then the idealists as well, I, I have a hard time saying that because I recognize how much our body, you know, your gut, for example, all those neurons firing in your gut, we know now kind of affects how you experience the world. Your brain and, and, and the physical world affects your experience in the world. So I have a hard time saying just all is mind. So I hope that kind of helped unpack and set the stage for the episode. <laughs> um, yes, I, I think there's, I certainly share your criticism of, of dualism i think that how how the two separate entities could interact without us being able to detect that i, I think that's a, a huge problem for for dualism so i'm quite happy to take dualism off the table or, on that basis uh, alone because i think mm -hmm. everything else uh, accounts for for that better um so I, I, th I'm, I should have listened to the episode that I recorded with Philip Goff on panpsychism before this, but I was so busy listening to you all. <laughs> no worries. Instead. But I think one of the things that uh, came up on the panpsychism uh, episode so I recorded was about it was about atoms, and you, you mentioned atoms because yeah. one of the questions that came up was: so are you saying that? Uh, consciousness is a property uh, of the atoms and the answer was no it's not a property of an atom it an, an atom is essentially part of consciousness you don't separate yeah. the two you know it, it, it and is is you you're clearly agreeing with that as a as a definition and it, do you want to flesh that out explain that a, a bit more or is this something that we're still trying to work our way through 
Yeah, so I agree with that because it's kind of like the the way I see it is, I guess you could almost call this like a hypothesis of what could be. And the reason I also switched to saying, okay, this is kind of an argument for what consciousness could be. And like I say, this could be a good argument because, you know, and, and some materialists disagree with this. And this is maybe where I often have to agree to disagree with them because I still see my position as a partially materialist perspective, but I see it as accounting for that gaps. And what I see is that the hypothesis is that maybe there's these kind of psychophysical laws in nature that is the kind of like conscious experience where, and, and, and depending on how you want to describe it, I know like in the spirituality community, it gets a little bit woo wooey. And I think the materialists kind of oversimplify things and try to get down to like, just what is observable, but we kind of recognize there's kind of this energy and all this stuff that kind of affects the world. I mean, there's some of that stuff even in scientific journals about that type of stuff. And I think that might say something. And it's it, the issue is, and I know that materials has a problem with this position because of this, is it's hard or we don't have the tools right now to really observe or dis- maybe even discover. So I think it's possible that we discover some sort of those psychophysical laws that account for this small amount of consciousness within the atoms. And the reason I, I say this is like, because if we wanted to understand consciousness, we need to fill that gap. And even materialists recognize there's a gap there. There's an issue there. Because the problem I have when a materialist says that, you know, we, we continue to study the mind and figure out all its various mechanisms, then we will know. But it gets down to those kind of philosophical issues that are brought up. It's like you can teach someone all there is to know about, you know, I think I used the example in my episode, the color red or the color green. I haven't <laughs> listened to my episode in a while. But it's the example I like to go to. You can teach everyone what everything or someone everything there is to know about that color, you know, the properties, the scientific formulas, uh, how it happens in nature. You can learn all that stuff. I admit that. But you still doesn't account for what it is to intrinsically experience that. That is something unique to the conscious experience. Uh, And that's where, like, you know, I'm not a dualist, but I think dualist is trying to figure out that distinction because they recognize that problem. I don't see their solution as a good solution. I see it as trying to we need to find an argument to fill that gap. Uh, And and that's where it's like, okay, so if we want to understand consciousness, we need to fill that gap. Here's a possible gap filler in panpsychism. Not saying it's true or right. It's more of like we have a gap. I don't agree with either side of the the consciousness argument. Therefore, here's a alternative formula, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it is. Um, I'd like to come back to the color one because that came up when we spoke to Philip Goff. But before we go that, I'd like to step back a little bit more about um, the the challenges of materialism. And you're right about about materials materialism is all about what what can we measure what can we we touch what Mm. can we see and um the proposal is that that consciousness isn't susceptible to any of those so why are you expecting to see it under materialism and um i get that the where i've fallen to resolve that is and i'm pretty sure that most materialists uh land on on the same place is that consciousness isn't so much uh, a separate entity but a, a byproduct of uh, 
of what the brain does. I think in one of your episodes, you talk about, about the brain being an information processor, which is mm-hmm. uh, very much where I am. It processes all the senses that we've got and all those processes need to land somewhere in the brain. And the byproduct of the, that that immense level of processing that is happening uh, millisecond by millisecond constantly throughout the day is what we now call consciousness because the brain is conscious is continuously processing uh, touch processing sound processing sight also then trying to communicate outwards uh, either via physical movements or or via uh, voice uh, as we're, we're doing now and so the byproduct of all that immense processing is this this uh, um is what we call consciousness. I was looking for another word to call it, and I've and I just haven't got one, so I've I, I've called it consciousness. And um, now, presumably, you reject that as a proposal, or do you feel that it just doesn't satisfactorily answer the problem at all? Yeah, so it's it's a mix because the issue with that is it that's kind of it gets down to this where they where a materialist would say that consciousness is kind of like this emergent property. And the reason I have a problem with that is because in my in my the way I process <laughs> the, the discussion of consciousness is that it's making a similar issue as the dualist, for example, where the materialist will say it's emergent and then all of a sudden, then you have this subjective experience. This is where we're getting into the hard problem of consciousness, where mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, let's say we discover all these configurations and all this and the mechanisms of the mind. Should we be able to assume that consciousness will emerge and that and then we'll be able to explain why we have this subjective sensory experience? Um, and to and, and this is where it's my perspective is I see the issue there because that emergent idea is a like, you know, it's 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 not proven. It's a big assumption to make that the observable world will be able to account for that experience world. If that makes sense. So, and the reason I say it's a similar issue with dualism is because dualism wants to say there's a connection there, but still there's that, there's that distinctive gap where one says it's emergent. The other says all of a sudden, you know, it's like these two separate properties and all of a sudden it kind of like hops on board. Uh, (laughs) Dualists will probably get triggered by, by my explanation of that, but that's kind of the way I see it. Um, so the way I, like I try to adapt to that, to kind of solve this consciousness mystery and say that, okay, your what I see it is I already make fun of the dualist a little bit for being like, okay, that's kind of like a little magical connection there that all of a sudden happens. And I, I would say it's less magical on the materialist side, but I would also kind of say it is where, where we're just going to assume this. So if we're going to make this big assumption and this is where I get to the panpsychic position. If we're going to make this big assumption, maybe we can find a assumption which I'm I'm making. I fully admit that panpsychism is making an assumption that hey, possibly there is this kind of intrinsic level of consciousness in atoms that kind of combine and form this sensory conscious experience. So I admit there's an assumption, but the assumption I want to make, I want to allow that assumption to fill more of those gaps that I see within the argument. And that's where I get into the argumentation side, because I also admit right now it's hard to measure what it is the panpsychist is talking about. It's more of it to rely 
on our actual subjective experience of consciousness of the mind, which, you know, it gets down to you, <laughs> you kind of have to, you know, you take the argument and you just have to the feel it in a sense. And I understand that that's not a reliable source because we kind of know how, how psychology works and how the bias works and all that. But it's still the fact if we're going to have to, if we, if I recognize that we have to make an assumption, I want to try to make a safer assumption and lean towards that one. So that's why I say, although I like say, you know, hey, I lean towards panpsychism, I'm not out here saying that, oh yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. I have no doubt it's true. I'm definitely not going to be the one to say that. <laughs> I know it's, it's challenging, isn't it? Um, I think on the, on, on the subject of, of assumptions and uh, and gaps and uh, how we unpick those, I think one of the reasons why materialist science has been as successful as it has in in discovering what it has been able to discover is the the testability and measurability of what is physical. How do mm-hmm. we? And I, I guess the short answer is that for the moment we can't. But can you foresee a, a time when we will be able to? leap beyond that and and actually puts put these assumptions to a to an appropriate test so that we can validate what's going on yeah we're still I mean, too far away from that i mean right now i, I foresee and, and this is where i admit like my interests are definitely in philosophy psychology and spirituality so i fully admit i also have a gap in scientific understanding i do love the scientific method i understand the basics of science and why it's valuable and, and what it's measuring and, and the mathematics and all that stuff. So I, for these types of arguments, I do think you just need that basic understanding because at the end of the day, the arguments that we have right now about consciousness do really rely on philosophical arguments. So to, to kind of answer your question is right now, from my understanding, no, we don't really have the tools to measure what it is we're talking about. And I also know through history, <laughs> it's it's a dangerous assumption for, you know, humans in each generation to assume that, oh, like, you know, we'll never be able to figure that out. That'll never be a thing that's measured or or that's just going to remain this like magical mystery. Right. And that's where I do think at some point there's going to be these however we define them or call them or connect them to the physical world, there's going to be these more psychophysical laws that are found. And I think there's like little bits of evidence. I'd have to like, I I should have done a little bit more research on this part and pulled up some, some articles I've pinpointed in the past, but they're about like this idea of how energy and all this stuff affects things in the material world. Um, And I think there might be something there. I'm not proclaiming, if people people that listen to my show know that I, I rarely proclaim to know anything. So the reason I'm also kind of, I really enjoy the panpsychist view is because it's it's like, how are we going to place our bets about what is possibly going to be found to be more true? And I do kind of like that trying to place my bets in something that we can't really know for sure at this point, because the materialists will even admit that, you know, we, we don't really know what's going on with that subjective conscious experience. We can observe, you know, areas in the brain that affect, you know, your subjective experience. And we're starting to gather more information on that. But we still have not figured out that very intrinsic conscious experience. We still, you know, don't really know anything about what, you know, animals are experiencing or, you know, there's reports of like what plants are experiencing, having some sentience and all that. 
there's these these various things we see all throughout the world, all these effects and all these various forms and 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 formations of consciousness that I'm really fascinated by. And it is this mystery. You kind of just have to wonder about it. So when you're left to wonder about it, it's you get to the point of accepting that, hey, I, I don't know. We probably won't know in this lifetime. But if I'm willing to place a bet where it's going to go in the future, because I see it as filling this gaps, possible gaps now, maybe it will look something like this. And that's why I also like the Panpsychist position because it's kind of adaptable in that sense where it's saying, hey, there might be something like this, this, this more deeper connection between the physical and conscious experience. What if it's that? I don't know what it looks like for sure, but there might be there's something there, if that makes sense. It- Yes, I, it kind of does. And I think our problem is is hampered by by the fact that the only consciousness that an individual has experience of is their own. You know, we, mm-hmm. we can't sample a, another individual's consciousness. We can't dip into what their conscious experience is. It's it's like our each individual has their own compartmentalized uh, consciousness. Do you think that? that observation gives us any kind of hints as to where things are. Because when I was listening to uh, to the panpsychism argument and about consciousness being tied to, to atoms or it being the other way around, it kind of felt like some of the ideas where there's a, a, a single uh, global or universal consciousness. And that doesn't work for me because each individual experiences consciousness differently and and uniquely we we can't engage with other people's consciousness you now our, our dreams we don't share uh. dreams for example so is is that observation good enough to rule out things like universal consciousness and even some parts of panpsychism so yeah there there's a i'm trying to figure out which direction i want to take this because i want to avoid getting into like kind of the the woo-woo side of things but um <laughs> <laughs> um so, so I yeah, I understand that that perspective, but the way I see it is it is still possible to have this sort of one consciousness um, because I, I get I get it because when you start talking about one consciousness, the materialist side and, and I used to be lean more towards materialism, you know, that type of thing. But when you say one consciousness, the the materialists often scoffs at the idea because it starts sounding a little bit like sounds new agey, doesn't it? <laughs> new agey, an argument for God and all this stuff, and they and they scoff at that. And and this is why I'm fascinated by this type of discussion around consciousness because it kind of it allows me to kind of hop around between various groups because I'm willing to have a conversation about that God question relating to this one consciousness idea. But to kind of set that part aside, the way I see it is if there's it's it's not the idea that there's this kind of conscious being. We we try to make sense of that. So we like, how do I say this? So we admit that animals have different conscious experience, all this stuff. Plants possibly have some sort of conscious experience. Um, not as much evidence for that. We just know animals do. So I'll use animals as an example. But the idea is, is that although there could be this one consciousness, this it the the way we pull from that you still have that different conscious experience. Um, so it's not in the in the sense that, how do I say this? Do you kind of see where I'm going there, where it's like you're pulling from that source of consciousness, 
But the phys- I guess that's where we have to figure out the connection between the physical and the conscious mm-hmm. world is there's still like a mixture there where it creates different outputs and how it affects the world. Um, but the point is when you say one consciousness, it's more of like this idea that consciousness being fundamental to something, a fundamental property. And I don't know if one consciousness is the way to say it. It's more of that, it, like just as the physical world has fundamental properties, consciousness could be a fundamental property and maybe it is just consciousness but there's just different mixtures of it does that make sense i i think so the analogy tell me if this analogy works then could it be then that if we imagine that you get units of consciousness like you get bricks and a brick Mm -hmm. on its own does nothing but you put a couple of thousand of them together and you you get a, a functionable house could consciousness be analogous to that kind of thing yeah, I, I like that. I think so. I, I'm surprised I haven't heard that example. That's actually a good way to put it. I and, just and made this up on the fly listening to oh, you that's, talking. <laughs> no, that's good. No, that's great. Well, that's. I wish I had that talent to like think of those more on the fly. But <laughs> uh, it only um, happens occasionally. It's not a permanent <laughs> fixture in me. To and I think I can like kind of extend from that a bit because like it's like um, so think of the bricks using the brick example is we kind of admit bricks are everywhere. Right. And, and maybe bricks aren't the best substance, but I, I, I do like your example. So like bricks are everywhere, but yet the bricks, yeah, they form different formations of the of buildings and and building materials. We can even just generalize and say building materials. Imagine building materials as these little pieces of consciousness in a way. You know, we, we call them all building materials. And, I, and that, that's probably an overgeneralization. But to get the point of you call consciousness consciousness. So like the building materials are building materials and you can create different formations. But at the end of the day, the foundation of those things are building materials. So you could still say that the, the, the building block is consciousness, but there's just these different formations and unique formations all over the place because consciousness is trying to do that. We, we don't really know for sure what the goal of consciousness is, or the, if, if, if the universe is conscious, whatever that means. We don't really know what that goal is. And I think that is a limitation of humans and the human mind of like what we can know. But damn, it's really fun to think about. <laughs> it, it is. And um, I still want to come back to the color thing, but I don't want to arrive there just yet. I want to stay with what we're on. Actually, I, I won't guess your answer. I'll, I'll let you answer for, uh, properly and, and see if uh, my prediction is right. In terms of testing consciousness and and, and what's going on, we can put a person into into an MRI scanner and we can detect activity in the brain and our ability to to do that has increased uh, quite a lot over the over the last decades and even more so over the last years to the point where we now to some approximation we can show somebody a picture and tell them to think of the object in the picture and then the brain scans can to a limited capacity predict what it is that that the observer what the human is looking at without the two being connected does that make Mm -hmm. sense so like someone can see a picture of an elephant and the brain pattern is unique to that picture and the computer can read it and and roughly guess that it's that kind of kind of thing now does that tell us anything about consciousness or materialism or this subject that we're talking about yeah so I don't know if this is the right way to connect this, but so like the way I see that is almost it connects to the the what what example is it the Chinese room I think yeah yeah the China yeah the Chinese room where 
it's like, okay, if you teach everyone, like it kind of gets back to this. Like maybe this is where we could get into color, but it's this idea. <laughs> I haven't read up on the Chinese room. So I'm going to explain the best I can. If you remember it, you can fill in any gaps I missed. Cause I fully admit, um, I might botch this a little bit, but it's basically, I know it deals with like language. You like send someone the message and how to formulate it. And they're basically just copying what information they're given and then they create the message and they are able to respond. I definitely like botch that. But the general principle is there where it's like, do they know English, for example, if you try to like give them all this information or am I saying that right? I feel like I need to like look this up. Yeah, my understanding is it's basically following a bit. It's to put it in computer terms, as I'm a software developer uh, for my day job, is it's a bunch of if-then statements. So, in, yeah. in the Chinese room, the individual in the Chinese room doesn't know, has no communication outside. So, the person on the outside will put in the, in the slot some Chinese characters, who and the person inside the room doesn't understand them, but they do know if they look up a table, they have to paint other Chinese characters in response to the ones that they get. So they follow the steps. If this character paint mm-hmm. that one, if this character paint that one. So they paint the response ones back and then put it out, back out the door. And then the person on the other side gets what the answer is. But the person doing the painting has no idea what they're communicating. Yeah, that that's, that's, and that's where I, I'm glad you, I'm glad you remember it. Cause I should have remembered that. But um, so basically I see that as the example you provided as falling into the issue I see with the Chinese room, because do they really know or understand what they're given? Right. Or like, do they, and, and then that's where I also like to use the color example. Cause I feel like it kind of connects a little bit or it connects with that kind of intrinsic idea a little bit better. Um, where it's like, you learn everything there is about color and do you know, but you still don't know what it is to experience color. Right. Um, and that similar thing. So it's, it's, I still, and, and this is where I admit I could be wrong. It's just, I see the gap there where we still don't know what that experience is. Cause I think there is something intrinsic, I guess you could say about experience in the connection with consciousness. So, I mean, I guess this would even get into the idea that, you know, if, if it gets into the discussion of, can we formulate a, artificial intelligence that is, has a conscious experience. And I have a hard time seeing that possibility because maybe it's some form of consciousness. Maybe that's possible. I admit I don't have the knowledge to possibly proclaim anything about that, but it's going to be very distinctively different, I think, than say even like a human experience or an animal experience or a plant's experience because it's still purely inputs they're not really experiencing anything they have the inputs that create the output and you can probably we could probably get to the point where it develop it enough where you are able to and, and this could be like years and years and years from now you're a software developer so you probably have better knowledge about this type of stuff than i do but the idea is still that it's just input output input output there's no actual intrinsic experience there it's hard for us to create that intrinsic experience and that's where the gap I still see, even in, in the example you provided that follows. Yeah, I yes, I, I get that. And yes, you're right about it. it's it's the input output thing. And that 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 would still be why I fall on materialism, because that's what I see the brain mm-hmm. as. It's a whole bunch of inputs. It's not quite binary. It's it's a, it's um 
very much an, an analog system. There's lots going on there. Um, and um, where I was kind of predicting in my mind that you would go is you'll go, yeah, and under panpsychism, if the, the atom and consciousness are are the, are the same thing, if consciousness is the physical, sorry, if the atom is the physical manifestation of consciousness, then we would still see those same results in, in those MRI experiments. That was kind of where mm. I was predicting you, you might go. So now I've fed it to you. You can <laughs> you can say whether or not I've, I've understood panpsychism correctly, because obviously for the materialist, they say, yeah, well, that's what we expect. Um, and I think under uh, under those experimental conditions, I would use those to rule out uh, dualism and the universal consciousness, because I don't think it, that works very well well for them. But I don't think that we can use that ne- experiment to necessarily rule out panpsychism, much as I would love to be able to rule it out, because then obviously right. I'd be right and I, I win. <laughs> um, so, um, but yeah, moving on, on to the, the colour thing, because you said it in, in your podcast episode, uh, and Philip said it in his same one with us about how, how do we... Ex- understand the experience uh, of the color red and you know that comes up a lot in conversations of consciousness and i have to be honest i i don't really understand uh, what that means i know all it is to feel to experience something tactile and i i know all it is mm-hmm. to stand on a hilltop and, and look at a view and have that awe of uh, the one wonder of nature and go wow these rocks were once an accretion disk around an insignificant star and over billions of years they've congealed into this planet and then evolution has been able to grow and uh, we've got trees and grass and flying insects and me and oh my word all these billions of years and there's me standing here experiencing it in the now and that that awe of that moment I get but if you're going to burrow it right down to a single color of a of a single fruit i don't quite get that same experience of the red of a ripe tomato i don't although if red is associated with a juicy ripe tomato then i get it because that (laughs) that red says you're going to enjoy biting into this or for my daughter it'll be get that spawn of satan away from me um but um but what re- is there more to the the experience of the color red than associating it with something juicy? Yeah, I so and maybe this is where I'm going to try to do this a little bit on the fly. But I do see where people would have an issue with just the color example because I actually think it might oversimplify for understandability. Right. But we can we can flip. I think we can expand on it to maybe I want to kind of apply to what you said in you in the original part of your experience. Let's say you you learn about mountains and you and I, I know you you probably have an experience where you're on top of a peak, a mountain, and you see the sunrise come up and all the color, the various colors you see, and you see like just the vast. Maybe you see like snow peaks on the top of the mountain, and and just you're in awe. You have this sensory experience of awe. Where you're just like, wow, like look at what I'm seeing, look what I'm experiencing. It's a very distinctive feeling. Now, now what I just described to you, right, that probably, hopefully, I don't know if I did the greatest job of <laughs> creating that off for you, but hopefully it created a a trigger for a memory of that experience. And that's why you can still connect with it. 
However, yeah, if you top never of Whistler had Mountain it, about twenty years ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it triggered that memory, right? But let's say, let's say you never were able to see a mountain, you never saw a picture of a mountain, none of that stuff. You maybe you never even were able to see a sunrise. But I describe or had you like read up on what a mountain is, what a sunrise is, all that stuff. But you. And and sure, you can have an experience and try to imagine what that would be. And even when you start imagining, you kind of get into the 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 panpsychic position, in my opinion. But um, but still, like it, there's something distinctively different that happens with your conscious experience when you have all that sensory input and those emotional reactions. And then that's when you know what it is to experience that thing you can't learn about that experience you have to experience it to maybe i I always hate like using this type of language but truly know (laughs) what that experience is and even though that that experience for you is is unique it's still something intrinsically unique to you and separate from just being able to learn about the material around those things if that i don't know if that example helps but the, the fact the facts of the height of the peak of Whistler Mountain and the fact that you can see other mountains right. from the top of it and the fact that it's got snow at the top and the fact that it can be really quite cold at times and, and um, skiing down, it can be uh, quite a, quite an experience, mm-hmm. the, you know, but none of those, none of those facts give you awe on their own. And me right. talking about those facts sat at my uh, desk in the the smallest uh, bedroom in my house doesn't give me the same experience as actually standing on that that mountain 20 years ago and looking out and and feeling that that blisteringly cold air uh, on my face you know the 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 two experiences are are completely different and it's arguable that we we need consciousness to be able to decode that i don't know if that's the right right word to throw in there but we we need something more than just our senses to be able to get anything out of it you know in the same way right that uh, you need many many components to to make a functional car but if you pile the components on the garage floor you're not going to get any pleasure from it you know you need them to fit together in a, in a specific way to be able to get a usable car out of them. We need those sights, those sounds, those those feelings, uh, that sensation of cold, the warm clothes on us to be able to get that same experience or, of awe in that moment at that moment. Yeah, exactly. Because And that's where I just see is there's something unique to that. And, and the way like that kind of helped bring me to this, and this is kind of... I haven't really heard it expressed where it's like I see the, the almost the materialist position as trying to create this purely rational world. And I'm kind of somewhat doing this on the fly, so you might be able to do some pushback here. But a purely rational world in the sense of, you know, we just think about something and we create these arguments for it and we will know like we what we know about the mind and like psychology is the human doesn't operate in a purely rational fashion. We're influenced by our feelings. We're, we're influenced by our conscious experience of the inputs we take in, how we, we process those, how we experience those intrinsically affects our rationality. So and, and the way the way I've like been thinking about this is kind of I like that connection is because it kind of fits into that panpsychic position of how we see the world. It, it's creating this 
this idea that, hey, this the experience world and the rational physical world are connected. You can't we can't separate them neatly. Right. And, and the dualist tries to separate them neatly. The materialist tries to say, well, there isn't really this kind of feeling mechanism necessarily. That's just like, you know, it, it gets down to some. I, I know not a lot of materialists say this, but it's almost imaginary in a sense. But no, I, I, it's connected to how we see the world and we can't pull ourselves from it. It's intrinsic to us. It's that experience is intrinsic to us. And it's how we understand the world on an intrinsic level in my eyes. So. I don't know if that that made sense. Yeah, that 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 does make sense. I'm I'm not going to push back because you know, I, I I don't because I don't really disagree with with anything that you've said. I think what I would like to ask though, in terms of the the function of because yeah, I agree. Humans most of the time act irrationally. You know, we're we're, we're not not rational beings. We're not rational creatures. But I don't think that that necessarily re- requires consciousness Uh, it requires what we call consciousness and i i think where i'm going with this is if our the input of our senses was strictly a one thing at a time process you know if Mm -hmm. you imagine a, a a line of traffic going through a gate and only one car goes through a gate at a time you can process each car in good time and then the next one comes along if our brain processed all of our senses like that one bit at a time then we would probably be able to be more rational i'm half guessing here so i'm quite happy for either yourself or any listener to to push back on this specific point reasonpress at gmail.com is the email address to push back on so um if we were processing each little thing one bit at a time we may be more rational whereas what's actually happening is everything's pushing in on our brain all simultaneously in in no priority order and our brain our processing unit in our brain has to process it all it needs to do it all live Mm -hmm. and um you know sometimes we get caught thinking and we go where do i land with my thoughts i've got this i've got that i've got got the other and that's why we're ultimately irrational because we can't process everything in a timely manner and get out a an ordered sentence because the we simply haven't got the capacity and, and the time to do it. So we prioritize according to preferences and bingo, what comes out is, is irrational because something's had to be cut from the equation. I don't know. I, I agree with that. I, I see that as very plausible. And I, I think it almost is like, I see a mixture of the two. Cause I do recognize that and fully admit that. And, and, and you kind of, when you said that it brought up and, <laughs> Maybe I should stop bringing up people if I can't fully express their view. But um, Donald Donald Hoffman, he he came out with the book as well. What was it? I think the Case Against Reality. I don't know if you read that one. I only I, I read most of that one. Um, you, you might. I think you'd be really interested in because it kind of connects with that idea. Cause, and he likes to use the example of, you know, humans. We kind of admit we don't have access to all like the the experience of the world, like everything that's coming in. We definitely try to oversimplify things so we don't go crazy because <laughs> like we have to because there's just too much inputs coming in all the time. So our, our mind has to make assumptions so we can operate in the world, basically agreeing exactly what you said. So he kind of uses the example of the humans have this kind of interface. And he, and he I think he, he doesn't call himself a panpsychist. I honestly think he would be – I don't know what, where he actually aligns. From the sounds of it, he – 
to me, he aligns more as an idealist, but I'm not going to say that for him because <laughs> I don't want to like put words in his mouth or anything. But anyway, he talks about kind of this like interface idea where we see the world. We basically have this interface to operate through. Just like a computer has an interface where, you know, you, you click the little icons on the screen and it does stuff. We don't really like some people know the mechanisms behind it, but like really that stuff just happens for us. And it's a similar perspective that we have where we are basically operating with this computer screen, but we don't know everything that's going on behind that. And we don't need to know. We have to make the assumptions about the world and operate through though the lens that we are given. But the lens we are giving is a very limited lens. And it also kind of raises the question of, you know, will we ever be able to go beyond that lens? We might be stuck, limited in this particular lens of how we see the world because, you know, for some reason we have to make these assumptions and oversimplify. And so we don't go crazy because there's just so much stuff out there to input yes there is an, an awful lot to process and you know, because we're when we're studying consciousness we're basically trying to self-reflect which is always quite mm -hmm. a difficult thing to to do anyway and uh, i i think yeah materialism does just try to simplify it all down to to individual components that it can chew on and you mm -hmm. know, maybe that's not quite the right approach for for consciousness, and maybe that's why we haven't got the answer for it yet. You know, it's um, I love the idea, I love the challenge. I'm definitely not the person that's going to solve the problem, but I do love <laughs> <Me> neither <laughs> hearing about it. And um, as a quick aside, the way I view the relationship between philosophy and science is, um, and I'm. I'm saying this for your feedback, so if you don't agree with me, I'm, I'm quite happy for you to uh, to correct or fine-tune what I'm about to say. Um, but the way I view the relationship between philosophy and science is philosophy comes up with the interesting questions and the interesting ideas, and we shouldn't dismiss philosophical ideas because we don't like them or we think we can come up with a, an explanation for, for why they're wrong. I don't think that's a good reason to dismiss any philosophical idea because we should welcome the ideas and the, the challenges that philosophy comes. What science tries to do is devise a way in which we can test the ideas. And in that sense, mm -hmm. philosophy will always be several steps ahead of the science because the science is playing catch up with the ideas. But that doesn't necessarily mean one is inferior to the other. They do very different things, but we, we need to shake hands uh, across the boundary. We, we need to welcome each other's world. Absolutely. I fully agree with that. And I'm glad you said that because, yeah, the way the way I see it, and that's, I, you know, I kind of said throughout the episode about panpsychism is, you know, I lean towards that because I see it as a persuasive argument that could fill, could fill that gap for science. And that's where I take it. I, I can tell that you don't really align with this, these criticisms on the materialist side. But the, the issues I have with materialism when they are not material, but like science itself, when they have a problem with this view, is they say, well, we have no way to measure it. And although I, I agree but it's like you're you're still making an assumption, like almost a philosophical assumption within that statement that, oh, like we need to be able to measure it in the traditional sense that we know now. But that stuff's already established. And I, and I agree with you. You're right. It, is that philosophy is meant to put forward these ideas 
fully admitting like, hey, we're, we're probably wrong at least some way about this. But here's an idea that it seems persuasive, seems to follow it with decent argumentation, good reasoning, good logic. Take it for what you will. See what you can do with it. So, yeah, that's why philosophy, I feel like, gets a lot of, of unnecessary bad rap. Like, rap and, and you have, you know, people throughout, like Neil deGrasse Tyson have even said that, like, you know, philosophy is basically dead. And I just – I kind of laugh at those statements because – our entire metaphysical world, our idea about metaphysics and which translates into how we figure out science stuff came from ideas put forward by philosophy. And I also like do kind of ascribe to the idea that, you know, basically at the end of the day, the field of physics, for example, is a more specialized version of philosophy. You know, to me, philosophy is just kind of this pursuit of understanding whether it's understanding whether it's truth whatever it's wisdom meaning whatever those things are it's this very it's trying it's it's trying to make sense of the world so to me it'll always be necessary and it is always going to be the kind of that starting point for everything else so yeah i'm glad you said that though <laughs> okay good uh, thank you for that and i, I think yeah there's and I'll raise my hand up. I have been guilty in the past of rejecting something because there's there's no way it can be tested. And when the hard materialist meets somebody who's got an idea that uh, the, the materialist can't test, it, it is occasionally difficult to have a productive conversation because uh, the two come at it with, with very different uh, you know, agendas and sides. And yes, I've been mm-hmm. guilty of saying, well, I can't test that. I reject it completely. And I think sometimes we need to be careful with our language because sometimes something might be rejected because there is evidence for another answer. Even if there's, even if we can't test that specific solution, there might be evidence for another answer. But for consciousness specifically, if I reject panpsychism because there's no evidence for it, or sorry, if I reject panpsychism because there's no way to test it, I'm not saying never because i haven't got evidence for any other option so it could still be that we come back to psychism later panpsychism later because we've now uh, updated something and we can test for it so i think we Mm. need also need to be careful in in the language that we use when we reject an idea you know it's an idea can be rejected because we found a different answer or an idea can be rejected because we can't test it but (laughs) we we need to understand the two different meanings of reject in that context yeah oh i thought no that's a that's a good distinction to make um yeah i I fully agree and philosophy has lots of ideas around consciousness and and they're not all compatible with each other so we can probably say with some confidence at least one of them is wrong we just need to try to work (laughs) out a way of weeding out those that are more wrong than others and then fine-tuning those that, that are left so that we can come up with a good answer. And I think we need to welcome the ideas that that philosophy is giving us on this because science isn't giving us these ideas. Philosophy is giving these ideas. And mm-hmm. on that basis, I'd, I'd like to – the previous episode of Proscenium that was recorded was on, on thinking. Uh, and my partner, Andrew, he did that with um, – with, with some other guests and I wasn't on that episode. So this is my payback for him uh, doing an episode <laughs> without me. So, but does thinking by necessity require consciousness or is thinking something that we could emulate through materialism? Are you the right yeah, person uh, to ask that question? <laughs> that's, 
That's an interesting question. I would say, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think I would say yeah because the what you know it gets down to where the assumption I'm making about this stuff is that the conscious experience and the physical world are connected. So in order to have a thinking experience, you need to have a conscious experience. And the reason I, I'm willing to make that assumption is because the way I see the world is the most reliable thing we have to know with certainty is we have this conscious experience. There, there's something there. We don't know maybe the best way to describe it, what it is for sure, what it means, you know, why it matters, why it exists, all this stuff. But yet it's what we have to see the world through, some form of conscious experience. So, and, and the reason we're able to have this discussion right now. <laughs> so mm. I guess, yeah, I do agree. The reason we're having this discussion right now is because of the conscious experience and which leads to thinking, which leads to creation, which leads to ideas and all this mm -hmm. stuff that leads to everything else. The devices we're using to the devices in the physical world to have conversations like this, to podcast, to all that stuff. So, yeah, I definitely think it's it is a necessary thing. Yeah. And and I do agree with you. And I agree with you because you qualified it with the word experience. I, I agree that we experience consciousness. It's I think where where I'm really struggling to to accept proposals is the proposal that consciousness is uh, is a separate entity. I think that mm. that's the that's the difficulty for me. I'm very much more in, on the side of it. It's a glorious illusion, and I'm I'm quite happy to to be fooled by <laughs> by by the lump of jelly <laughs> in my skull in that way, uh, because it it produces some some wonderful things. So I I accept that I'm experiencing consciousness because that's the label I've got. On the subject of thinking, and forgive me if this if this is a tangent, but I think it's relevant. I was I listen to quite a lot of science podcast because that's my thing I, I enjoy learning new and interesting things and um mm -hmm. i can't remember which one it was but the specific podcast isn't really that important there was a, a lady biologist i think she was talking about animal behaviors and she was talking about the way insects like spiders and ants behave and that they're able to decode behaviors uh, she gave the example of a spider but then she moved on to ants so i'm going to try and follow her her train and it will say you get an individual spider and it it see, sees a prey and it sees another spider move and it waits for the other spider to move and then it senses movement and then it moves and they can actually decode that behavior so they they know what is responsible for that behavior and ants do do something similar but the way it works in, in ants is ants effectively have a they have a set a trap for a prey and they mm -hmm. they as a as a team as a swarm go in and and get the prey together and it kind of looks like like hunting and um, but it's it's individual behaviors and each individual behavior is decodable as, as an innate genetic reactionary behavior but as a whole, it looks really, really clever. And she says, but we see that in ants and we, we don't think, we don't say it's thinking. We don't say it's an intelligent behavior because we can decode each individual movement in each individual unit. Yet we see very similar behavior in monkeys and or eight, other apes. And nobody suggests the same about apes. We just accept that they're conscious and intelligent and they've worked out how to hunt. 
Um, mm. So where do those two behaviours fit with thinking and with consciousness? And is it relevant to the conversation that we're having? I do. Th- yeah, I think that's actually very relevant. And this is where uh, my, another thing I'm fascinated by is, is I do kind of think it's almost like this idea of, of language and meaning we put behind various words in language. So when I when I hear, heard what you said, like, to me, it aligns with <laughs> panpsychism because I do still think there's something about so like the ants. For, and I'm fa- I, I haven't done my reading up on them in a while. But um, who was it that's fascinated by ants? E.O. Wilson. I used to, I, I, I was on a kick with him and he was fascinated by kind of like the operations of ants. And, and basically what they're doing is like, although you can you can observe that thing that observe what the ants are doing and, and the output and basically how they're instinctually acting. Right. It's kind of like that idea. But I do think that instinct is saying something about consciousness where we where we say thinking when we when we say thinking we kind of assume this more complex thing um, and we create this complexity and, and it might be true that it is more complex I do think humans have more complex thinking mechanisms and say an ape because an ape or, or, or we like create more but we also kind of do admit that like the apes could get to the point that we're at. Um, and that we don't need to get into the discussion yeah. of evolution, but um, I think they made a but, film about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. <laughs> Good point. Um, but the point is, is like I the it, it gets down to where I think the the issue is around. You know, is the ant thinking the way we are? No, it's not. <laughs> but mm. does the ant have some sort of conscious experience it's not complex like ours where it's taking taking in as many inputs it has no idea that we're here you know dominating the world in a sense it has no idea that it's just operating like it is um and but i'm also fascinated and this is where i'm gonna pull from where i i don't know for sure it's been a while since i looked into this but we're like ants very much they have this kind of hive mind mentality and there's a lot of messaging being sent there where I know oh, I see where of, you're going now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something intrinsic when they're all together, they create this more complex system of conscious experience. It, it's and, that, and this is where I, I do think that the materials have the big issue is, is I fully admit it's very different than ours. We can say it's less complex than ours. It's, but I like to say it's, it's just different. But when they're all combined like that, they do things with communication that humans can't do. Like human, we, commu- we communicate fairly well. Like we create these devices to communicate with people across the world. That's a fascinating thing that I think the consciousness experience has figured out how to produce in the physical world. But ants do it on this different level. But it's also I just see the connection there. There's something there that's communicative in the sense that it is consciousness and it might be just simply a language thing no that's a fair point where i'd push back on that is in an ant colony all the worker ants are effectively clones of each other so mm-hmm. their their behavior their genetics are effectively identical between them you know there might be some minor changes but it's by nowhere near the the variety that you'll get in in children right. of human humans and apes purely because of the reproduction process. So I think where I would go with that is with ants, it's 
it's going to look more of one mind because they are effectively of one mind because their genetics are the same. So it's the same microchip or processing brain or whatever analogy you want to use running around driving each ant. So they're going to behave the same way. So it's going to look more like a hive mind, but it is actually individual mm -hmm. minds which are identical. Whereas with the ape in the, in the hunting thing, they require much more noisy and complex and messy communication because genetically they're much, much more diverse. So I think that's yep. where I push back on that. But yeah, I, I see where you're going though. Yeah. And I agree with the, the pushback and that's where it's like, it's hard to, it's almost, <laughs> it's almost like we agree, but we're just like making slightly different assumptions. So it's like, I'm saying that there's something intrinsically happening that they're experiencing. It's, and I think that's where the distinction happens, where it's like, I describe that thing that's happening. Like, I, I understand the inputs to outputs idea where like the ape, they, they need that. They have more complex inputs to outputs. You know, they have more uniqueness to them because, you know, apes are more related to us. But it's still the fact that when they have those inputs, I still think even with the ants, there's just something there that it, like the like almost how do I say this? Yeah, like an intrinsic feeling. I feel, <laughs> I feel like I'm doing saying the same thing, but it's like this intrinsic part of it that creates that instinct that is different than purely the physical inputs outputs because at the end of the day it's like you know i don't know answer probably a bad example but the apes we know there's something to be an ape that gets into like the whole nagel side of things so yeah okay well sticking with thinking in consciousness but going to a different animal let's go to birds because they're probably a good midway point between ants and uh, mm -hmm. larger mammals I I live in a rural part of the, the UK, so I see quite a lot of, and I'm close to the coast, so I see seagulls amongst, as well as small birds and also small uh, raptors, small birds of prey. And it's they have different behaviours, but one very specific behaviour that I want to highlight is the seagulls and the larger ravens will really hound the bird of prey when it comes into the area. They recognise it for what it is. And they'll fly above it, making a huge noise, and they'll just bully the thing until it disappears and finds another field to go on. How does that kind of behavior clock into this question of thinking and consciousness? Yeah, so is that getting into kind of like the idea of where basically like animals pass down instincts? Yes, and, and, and yes, and recognizing a, th a threat. I, I guess that's the first part of it. It's got to recognize that the bird of prey is a threat of one description or another, either to itself or to its young, or to the young of other people, other animals within its group, and it's potentially putting itself at risk by by doing this as well. So it's um, quite a complex behavior if you start to break down all the components. Yeah, and and, and I agree. Um... And this is where this is where I still that's why I like panpsychism because it accounts for this type of stuff still uh, because I feel like even even like the bird is definitely you know has a more complex conscious experience than say the ant you know it, we're more apt to to admit that the bird is experiencing something like the, you know I they I, you know birds experience suffering for example um, so mm -hmm. there is something to be that bird and you know 
intrinsically to be that bird. And yeah, and that's where I'm fascinated. Something I've recently been fascinated by, um, and, and definitely I'll avoid the woo-woo stuff. When I when I talk to the people in the spirituality crowd, I, I bring this discussion up around consciousness because, like the woo-woo crowd, you know, they they like to talk about how humans, you know, maybe they pass down trauma and stuff like that. And I like tell them, I'm like, it kind of fits in with the whole panpsychist position because it's something about the instincts we pass down over years and years and years in the sense, you know, like the birds can recognize a predator where, you know, humans like we are usually fearful of snakes, for example, Mm. because it's something that was passed down instinctually that got passed on. And, you know, there's more evidence coming out about how like various people from different parts of the world basically have different instincts and preferences based on what was passed down. And to me, like when I see that, like the materialist will definitely say, and I can see, I absolutely can see where the materialist is coming from, where it's like something encoded in our DNA. But the way I see how that stuff changed, and maybe this is just like an evolutionary thing and I'm just like missing something. But the way I see it still is, is there something that consciousness is involved because it's helping pass that messaging down. Like when you have a new child, it's like you almost have related consciousness. You, like, And that's where it gets to where it's intrinsic to the atom. It creates that connection. You know, you have like a better connection with your parents, for example, because, you know, well, they're your parents. But am I willing to say it's just something – just pure, I mean, even the material or even the pants, I guess, position is somewhat purely physical. It's just identifying something else that is physical that is also consciousness. Um, but still, I feel like it fills that gap of what is being experienced, the connection between a parent, those instincts we have. It accounts for those things because I do think that it's something connected to consciousness when we have those instinctual experiences does that make sense it, it does make sense and the question i'd like to ask is does the knowledge that certain drugs and parasites even fungus and viruses this knowledge that in each of those or sorry there are any of those can fundamentally change our experience of consciousness does that cause any kind of challenge for panpsychism or do you think that also fits with panpsychism that's actually why i actually think it enhances um uh, really it's position i think yeah because really, i th- i think it's a slam dunk <laughs> for materialism <laughs> really yeah I, yeah because i mean and that's where like bringing up the spirituality community that's where like you know psychedelics come in and all this type of stuff mm. where it's like you how do I describe this? I, I definitely. Well, while you're thinking about that, let me give you a specific example that I'm thinking about on this subject. There's Perfect, a yeah. particular uh, virus which, if it infects mice, it suppresses the ma- the mouse's um, inherent fear of of felines. So instead of running away from mm-hmm. a cat, it will run to a cat. Actually, it might be a parasite. It's either a virus or a parasite. The, whichever it is, is isn't really the point. The point is the effect. It uh, suppresses its fear of feline, so it will run to a cat. The cat will eat it, and then it will infect the cat, and it will, will and that's how how it uh, propagates. But the the point is that the the mouse, instead of consciously avoiding a cat, that particular reaction gets overridden by this foreign entity. And so mm-hmm. it runs to a cat instead and usually to certain death. 
Yeah, and so that, that's where I see it as a critique, and, and I would agree with the critique on dualism because what, what the like that to me dismisses dualism in a sense or you know in my eyes at least for some people it doesn't but for me it does because the gap dualism has like we were talking about earlier is they think like basically the soul the conscious experience is purely separate from the physical where i see it as they're connected so the mouse for example in your example which I am fascinated by how, how that stuff affects a mouse because I'm like, well, what, what kind of stuff is affecting humans in that way? But, but um, the point is, is like where where it just basically messes up the instinct processing of that mouse. It's connected in some way. You can't separate the two. It's it's kind of like when um, like a human has brain trauma, their personality can completely change. To me, that dismisses the dualist perspective because they're trying to separate consciousness purely from the physical where that means that your like form of consciousness should just remain the same but it doesn't it's it it is connected to the physical so that mouse example is yeah the virus went in affected basically the atoms of the mouse it like inserted atoms i don't know the proper way to describe it yeah i've it, just looked up it's actually a parasite so i was right to correct oh, myself parasite. earlier it, it's a parasite and it affects a specific brain function in the mouse and apparently humans can get it too and it causes behavioral changes and has been linked to schizophrenia in humans oh wow that's that's i did I, like a few years back i listened to this book basically on how i forget the name and i give it a shout out because it's pretty good um about basically about this whole thing of how parasites affect all these various animals and their actions and just messes up with their survival mechanisms and that stuff fascinates me because it's like a lot of times we don't know the parasites that are in us or mm. the, the the way they operate and all that. But yeah, the, the, to like bring it back to panpsychism, I do think it still aligns because all it is is affecting the atoms that then affect the conscious experience. Because, And the reason I find it more persuasive than the materialist perspective around this is because – and I guess you, you probably wouldn't. And this is where I see it. I see the issue materialists have, but it's more of like, what if if you admit it's it's. I basically have a problem with saying consciousness is an illusion in a sense. When the fact of the matter is, is like that's what we have. So it's like, how do I fit what we can kind of know and experience about the world into my perspective of the world. So panpsychism is able to adapt to that. So like the mouse, like all of a sudden it r runs to the cat because the parasite in them. It's consciousness, its instincts were affected. Its consciousness was also affected by the parasite because the parasite on a very tiny, 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 small level had the ability to alter that mouse's conscious experience to change that. Does that make sense? I feel like yeah, it does. why the consistency We're, I see. Yes. Uh, I do. I'm. I, I think the difficulty I have with with panpsychism is the way I see it is we 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 basically ag agree an, an awful lot with what's going on. And yeah, I think absolutely. for for me, I think where I struggle is I think I, the way I interpret panpsychism is it's a adding an extra layer of of unknown to the knowledge that we have whereas mm -hmm. with materialism it stops one stop earlier and goes well this is where we are we need to discover more and panpsychism is proposing 
an extra layer on top and then saying but we need to to work more so i think it, it's that that's my the way i parse the differences in my mind and i prefer to stop sooner is okay is, is the way yeah. i where i see it so that's really the difference i i think that's the most simple way i think i can describe the the difference um and and no no you carry on because i was going to change subject slightly so you know oh yeah so i was going to say is i like that layer because to me if we want to understand the universe the cosmos everything whatever this is going on as much as possible we need those extra layers um and, and and that's where you know like we don't need to go down this path too much but i'm also fascinated by people's um psychedelic experiences and how that alters the mind and how a lot of times a common theme and this is where i'm liking that research is being opened up around this stuff because i th- do think it might have a lot to say about the conscious experience and how it's altered and how it's kind of connected to the physical um because the way you know a common theme that comes out of that is people just get like humbled to the sense of like we are just like a tiny piece to this grand thing and it, it just like it humbles you in the sense of we don't know there's just so many complexities and connections and and involvements there and i'm not saying this is like an argument for panpsychism it's just like when when you talk about panpsychism you're also still at the end of the day talking about and this is probably where philip goff and i would disagree a little bit he would not be as big a fan of this but i like to understand that feeling side of things because i do try to somewhat separate them to to give the the materialist credit where it's like you want to understand the intrinsic feelings where it's not about purely the rationale it's just about experiencing and a common theme that people come out of psychedelics is is they 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 talk about that where everything is just purely experience and that idea of you know when you're in that state that altered state and you're basically i i do say it's like you take your 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 walls of rationale come down your walls of understanding the physical come down a little bit you're kind of more in that consciousness space uh and i'm not saying it's like more real or anything like that it's just different it's just an experience thing and then you like come back and you start connecting back to your more physical side of things and you kind of just see that you know it's not the idea that there is something else but maybe there is and there's something about the purely experienced side of things that i think needs to be accounted for and what i see is in the observable physical side that the materialist is doing is they're observing things in the world and they're observing the very physical rational reality in a way i don't know if that's the best way to say it but i hope you kind of see where i'm seeing that mixture come in and why i do think there is like these kind of two different worlds in a sense to understand and those two different worlds can come together though yes they do and on sticking on the question of materialism versus panpsychism i can i understand better now when philip goff challenged us on our episode saying that in terms of the evidential challenges you know they both have the same problems and i think you've clarified for me what philip was was saying there because we're both talking about the same evidence and we're both saying yeah mm-hmm. what i'm proposing is 
uh, is consistent uh, <laughs> with the evidence that, that we're discussing. And and I get that now. I get that more clearly than I than I did a couple of months back. So so thank you for that. You've Ooh. you've helped. I'd, <laughs> I'd like to um, um, but what I really want to do is I want to find a way where we we can separate them. So I'm going to mm. use that to just change slightly, and um, I'm going to talk technology. And I love to talk technology because uh, everybody knows, or everybody who's a regular listener knows, I'm a software developer. I I, I like talking the way computers work. I don't know what your position is, so I'm going to assume assume knowledge. Uh, would you a- accept the proposal that computers either think or give the illusion to their operators that they think? Yeah, I agree. They they give the illusion that they're thinking. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's that's where I would go as well and the specific example i want to give is again one that andrew and the the guests he had in our previous episode about thinking came on and about a year ago i had a fabulous conversation with somebody also on consciousness he was a theist so we're talking about consciousness from a theist perspective and but the example is about i think it was google that wrote it it was a program to play go i think it's called alpha go the software is called it was either google or ibm whoever who wrote it who created it isn't isn't the issue it's alpha go was a program and it was playing go against the the go champion and they played several matches there was one specific match where the computer made a move that nobody anticipated nobody expected and everybody thought was a mistake you know even the developers and the the go experts they put their heads together and said why has it done that what on earth has it done that move for no professional ever would would make that move in a in a high stakes game and they were looking at the code they're saying is has there been a bug in in the code that it's done that and they couldn't explain it anyway later on in in the same game the reason for that move suddenly became clear when it turned out that other moves following it had actually been a highly critical game. And that move that everybody assumed was a, was a beginner's mistake, a newbie error. It was actually the key move in the game and the computer decimated as human component. And so I use that example as an example of a genuine novel idea coming out of a, a, a purely binary process which is analytical to a sense but certainly not conscious and certainly not thinking in the way humans think but it gave a really really good imitation of really really good thinking yeah that's a good i like that example um and maybe i'm partially misunderstanding it it's like still the idea is that the game that it was playing has set parameters, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like these set parameters, it's still within this limited box of possibility. Um, and I think maybe that's where the distinction comes. Cause, cause at the end of the day, it made the right move. It yes. knew it, you know, it's, it's more complex for that game than we are. Like we don't, we didn't understand that move. And then at the end of the game, we saw, you know, why it made that move. Um, You know, we can I would you know, I still call that a version of thinking for sure. But do I call that a you know, was it it was (laughs) it's getting back to it's like it wasn't really intrinsically experiencing anything. It was just 
doing what it's supposed to do like a computer is supposed to do it's 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 the game parameters are set like the computer knows what it should do it has set parameters it has set limitations and and and, and maybe maybe i'm like going to take this the wrong direction so feel free to backtrack me but this is it kind of gets into something else of why i find panpsychism persuasive is you know we say we live in this kind of infinite universe and I, and I know there's like some distinctions there. Um, and I'm definitely not an expert and to argue back if you want to push back, but the idea is with consciousness, it's like there is not necessarily these set parameters for what we, what is experienced by the universe by necessarily us and the different creations of that. So there's something different there because there's not there's not necessarily these set rules and that's and and not to get like i don't want to get off too off track i guess of your point but it's like that's where i still disagree with say like you know a a christian perspective on god they have a very they put these parameters in in my opinion that we don't really we can't really know about the world right but what if there is something beyond that is more creation there isn't these necessarily these limitations and maybe this gets into like just a critique of what science is trying to observe it tries to create this one size fits all picture but it's like we can't necessarily assume there's a picture so when you set up that game you're setting up a enclosed picture the grand scheme of things and then that's why it's able to achieve that thing it's be able to successfully achieve that does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. And certainly the parameters ones, you weren't you aren't the first person to push back on the go example because of the, the parameters. And I fully accept that. I think my response to that is, yeah, sure, that's true. I, I accept the criticism. But what it, it, it what it is demonstrating is if you put a, a human who is conscious and thinking in with the same restrictions as a computer that's not, but mm. is but is uh, focused on on that specific task. Even in situations where we assume that the human's ability to to think and and to think in a very clever and abstract way, that is still overcome by by something that's artificial. And if we roll back 30 years, you know, computers doing things like that was was much more rudimentary. You know, it started with checkers, mm -hmm. then it moved to chess, then we became so good at chess, we've gone on to go. And, you know, we're, we're really good at go. We're now looking at driving cars. And after driving cars, it will be something else, you know. In, and in 100 years' time, the, you know, the, the steps that we've taken between each bit will be so much more that uh, the com computers will be doing a lot more intricate things but they will still be artificial and they will still be computers and they'll still be operating right. to set parameters however if we took away the knowledge of all those intermediate steps and just went bam here's your technology where what computers will be able to do in a hundred years time and look how close to humans it's doing this and if we didn't have any of those other bits and it basically just landed on Earth through some kind of intergalactic accident and all we saw was this computer doing these things, would we assume that that was alien life or would we still be able to recognize that that was a computer? 
And I think that's yeah, that, the challenge that would cause us the problem. That is, I, I agree that would be a challenge because I, I do. So like, although I question if we're, like I said, maybe we do tap into, you know, my view of, and, and tap into something in the physical or able to replicate what those psychophysical laws I keep talking about are, maybe that's possible. But let's say that like that doesn't happen, but AI continues to become more complex, um, which I foresee happening. And I do foresee happening that it is going to have, it's almost going to be like humans. And it gets down to the fact that we can't really verify. <laughs> like I can't know for sure that you're having a conscious experience. I'm, I am yeah. kind of just like assuming that thing, you know, I have, I have what I'm experiencing and this, and this is actually, I hate to like, I feel like I always like say, well, this is actually proves my point, but like, it, it feels like it does because what I'm building my worldview upon is the thing that I can only know for sure. And, and I don't even know that for sure. <laughs> I'm like pretty sure. It's the most sure I can be is that I'm having a conscious experience. And the fact that that is the thing that I need to build my worldview upon is the reason that I say it needs to be something more fundamental than what the materialist is creating. Because the materialist needs to rely on the conscious experience. It's like when when a galact if a galactic entities came flying down and and, and it, it appeared that they were just, you know, they were like us, but really what if they're just AI? It's possible, very possible. And that to me is is the problem is you have to rely on what you're experiencing so you need to build off of that thing and that's what i'm trying like i try to find a worldview that builds upon that initial assumption that i'm most okay with making admitting i could be wrong i could be like actually an automaton that thinks i'm having a conscious experience but not but i'm not willing to make that bet that will be a scary thing to come and I, and i think from a materialistic evolutionary perspective i think that's that's what we we welcome. We say the that 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 illusion, that self deception, is essential, because if we were if we were conscious of the fact that we were fools and that we were unconscious fools and we were just re responding to chemical mm -hmm. reactions and DNA and didn't actually have our own mind, it could be quite a depressing world for us to be in. And I think it right. suits us and it benefits us to to have this this illusion that we're better than we really are yeah and and, and that's where like the, the, that's why i still rely upon you know like, it gets back to like kind of what descartes says like he yeah, i think therefore i am so like he knows he's thinking that's what he's going to rely you know that's what he tried to base his world beyond he became more he became a dualist obviously but still the point is is he observed the thing that he thought he could best rely upon like you couldn't be tricked into that you're thinking but I'd say that you could be tricked. But like if, for example, if the materialist wants to say that, yeah, this is like your conscious experience is, yes, it's mostly an illusion. Maybe. But then it's like, OK, if you're willing to admit that, then everything we observe about the world through science, through measurement, through mathematics, through the scientific method, everything we figured out, you have to then be able to admit well, that could be a bunch of bullshit too. <laughs> like, if if our conscious experience is is likely tricking us, 
then what we think we're verifying, even though if I do, I like the scientific method. I'm, you know, I always, I always use the example of like, I have a, a limited amount of time in the world and I have a limited amount of like capacity to like place my bets on things. So it's like, you know, I place my bets on a lot of things that science says because I do think the scientific method is reliable. But it's also the fact that when we get back to what we're building our worldview upon, that's why I need to make consciousness in a more intrinsic, integral part because if we start admitting that, you know, consciousness is an illusion, then we have to start admitting that science in the material world is also an illusion. And then you get into the whole idealist side of things, and I'm not persuaded by idealism. I almost think materialism, when they admit that consciousness is an illusion, they start falling into that idealist worldview, and they don't even realize it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I'm going to have to explore that one. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I kind of did that pull, one on the fly, so we'll yeah, see where it goes. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to explore that one and come back on that one, because I... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to respond to that for now, but I'm definitely going to have okay. to go and look up more on idealism because what I've read about uh, idealism, I, I I don't accept it. But, I'm, yeah, and, and when you say that, are you thinking objective idealism or subjective idealism, presumably subjective idealism? Yeah, probably subjective, and, and I admit I, I don't, I'm probably not the best at knowing like the distinctions between the two. I do like to oversimplify a lot of these ideas <laughs> yeah. for um, explanation purposes. I'm going to have uh, to go back and read up on them to to properly respond to that one, and, and I'm going to curse you for doing it so late in the conference. Well, actually, maybe it's better it's dropped in late. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I just kind of thought of it, it right now. Honestly, you kind of like, as your questions kind of brought that thought process, I've never actually thought of it this way. So maybe here, I guess I will try to unpack this because it, it's actually, it's almost like the materialists and the idealists are flipped. So the idealist wants to purely rely on the mind. And, you know, but they, they say that the physical world is the illusionary thing, right? Yeah. But then the materialist wants to say that, you know, that conscious experience, a lot of that is the illusionary thing that we have. But they want to rely on the materialist worldview, the physical world. Um, so what I say is what you're doing is the same thing. <laughs> you're you're trying to discount something that we have and experience as something illusionary. And to me, it, it, it gets – I guess this does end up coming back to the, the earlier points in the conversation. But it's when you have to rely on something like that. When you admit there is something illusionary to us, which which to some extent there is, even the panpsychists will admit that that some of this could be an illusion. But it's when you when you say that you kind of basically know something is an illusion, then all of a sudden your other piece of your puzzle also falls under you. So if you say that consciousness is an illusion, well, I have to say, well, then you have to definitely explore the possibility that you're being tricked into thinking that the physical world is real an objective thing mm. where the idealist wants to say you know all is mind and then they say that the the objective world is what the mind is experiencing that's what's real and and they do even say like the mind to some extent is illusionary depending on who you talk to the idealist worldview is very confusing at times <laughs> yeah. but I but 
But then they want to say the physical world is the illusionary thing, but it's like, okay, well, if that's illusionary, then the mind could be illusionary. And then it's like, everything's illusionary. And I'm not really willing to place my bets on that because I know I have my conscious experience and I want to place my bets on something that I feel like I can know. So yeah, I guess that kind of unpacks yeah, a little bit. I, I think where I'd object on there is we can, we can recognize when we've had a dream and we can recognize that that dream experience is different mm. to the waking experience. And, uh, we can, I've, I've not taken any psychedelic drugs, but I'm assuming that for those people who have had a drug induced high, mm. that again, afterwards they can recognize that they've had a high or even maybe during it, they recognize that they're having an altered experience i've certainly in my time consumed enough alcohol to recognize the effect that <laughs> alcohol is having on my brain and on, on my motor functions so for me you put all those together and the fact that we can tell the two experiences apart that that tells me that that idealism hasn't really thought through the implications of of its conclusions well enough and that we can rule out idealism on those i think would probably be where i'd go with that yeah, so and, and this this is like somewhat related to your point, and this is something I've tried to grapple with myself. Um, something I do find interesting is so the, I understand the dream perspective for sure. Where I mean, w when you're in the dream, it feels real. Yeah, even when you even when you become aware that you're dreaming, like you have a lucid dream, that's that thing still feels real. You go, you feel like you're in a different world. But the idea is still, though, that when you wake up, you realize it was a dream. Yeah. But like when you were in that state, you thought it was real. Now, to intensify that point where it's like, you know, after the fact, like once you have this new found, I guess you could almost say profound knowledge, you realize you're dreaming. But it's like right now we don't know what that what that knowledge is to confirm anything. So it's almost like we're we're creating this box so that we understand but really, it's still an interesting critique because even though you become aware you're dreaming, you know it's bullshit. It's still the fact that when you were in that, you didn't know it was bullshit. And no. Like I have dreams all the time where I don't know that it's bullshit until I wake up. And I think that says something really interesting about our everyday conscious experience. But on top of that, the other layer is what's unique about the psychedelic experience. And this is where it's like I actually find issue with this because a lot of times people say and, – and, and this depends on what community you're talking about. You talk to the people in the spirituality community. They talk that the dream world and the psychedelic world are the same thing, and they, they would say it's more real. But the average person that does psychedelics, a common theme, and, and there's like some research about this finally coming out. I'm, I'm really glad they're finally doing some research on psychedelics so some of this stuff can be compared and contrasted. And, talking about the scientific method we can start inserting that to make sense of all this shit but um the the idea is a lot of people come away from the psychedelic experience with newfound knowledge they perceive i don't, I don't know the best way to describe that i don't know if it's newfound knowledge they perceive it to be some newfound wisdom or insight and from that newfound wisdom or insight they actually then say no this is that was more real than the conscious experience i have every day that's a very common theme from that and to me, that says something interesting, because why is it that when we wake up from a dream, we say, oh, I was in the dream world. That's not that's not more real. But when you come out of the psychedelic world, you're like, oh, I experienced something more real, more intense. And now I need to make sense of that. So there is something, I think, interesting there. 
in the sense that it is actually saying something about the fact that we don't know. So maybe there is something to the whole conscious experience. And like I said, I'm not an idealist, but like I also like it's kind of like why I also like panpsychism because I can somewhat play both sides. I <laughs> see where the idealist is coming from, where you know that that mind conscious experience feels more real, and I see where the the materialist is coming from, where it's like, yeah, we see all these things in the world taking inputs and creating outputs. We see it in our technology, and we see the complexity continue to increase. Why not assume that at some point we're going to be able to create like a human like mind? But again, it gets down to what assumptions are we willing to make about what is real? And that's where, I guess, the disagreements start coming in. Yeah, and I think at some point we have to make an assumption because if you don't make an assumption, you oh, haven't got sure. something you can test. So exactly. you, you have to put a nail in a board somewhere and then work out where you go from there. And, um, Agreed. I, and, I, I sh- I th- and again, the effect that drugs and other substances has on the the brain and then therefore on consciousness and uh, thinking ability etc yeah I, I think testing those is going to help us unpack the issues i think one of the difficulties in there is the basic question of can you trust the reporting back of somebody who's having a psychedelic experience and <laughs> maybe that in itself creates a significant challenge for the testing process yeah, uh, I definitely agree with that because – so what, what I find interesting though still is although I am one to like say that people's psychedelic experiences, they do have very unique experiences. Like each person, it's unique in a sense. However, there is these more and, – and now that it's becoming more open in the U.S. as well, they're, they're trying to like understand this for like mental health reasons and all this – list of stuff they're trying to look into like what this stuff can do for people and how it alters how it affects your mind alters your mind alters your worldview all this stuff so what i find interesting is there is these common themes that come out of it and we could maybe we could say that they're going in with these assumptions and you know psychedelics help kind of actualize your pre-existing assumptions so you kind of see what you want to see maybe (laughs) um or Maybe there is something there to the fact that a lot of people come out talking about the one consciousness, this this oneness experience, feeling connected with the people in the room, feeling connected with your fellow human, having this new sense of purpose, um, having a new understanding of God. Because a lot of times people, when they go into those experiences, they dismiss the God that they were they were brought up with, and they, they come out with this whole new version of God that kind of just is do what do whatever, like find what works for you type of thing. And that humbling idea around it that people, those experiences people have, I find interesting because sure, maybe it is some sort of like made up thing, pre-existing thing that just, it, it like pulls stuff out of your already established mind, or maybe it is saying something about the conscious experience. Like I kind of said earlier, I think Philip Goff is a little bit more dismissive of the like, role psychedelics could play in understanding consciousness i'm a little bit more in favor of being open to what those things could say in our understanding of consciousness itself but i also fully admit that it it is something that could just be purely part of the physical paradigm okay i'm gonna have to tag him in twitter now when i put this up and say that brendan chap he went and dissed you sir (laughs) 
You should do uh, it. I, I, I think I'll, I told I'll him do... in my episode as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'll I'll make sure he's aware aware of this. Um, I hope he listened to your episode anyway and uh, and enjoyed that conversation. I just have one more question for you, Brendan, before I let you plug your your pieces uh, to your heart's content. Sounds good. And and that's on consciousness in in other animals. So if we go back mm. to the to to the brick analogy and you know, consciousness is a uh, attached to or, or intrinsically part of uh, the atoms if that's the case why is our understanding of consciousness in other animals different you know mammals mostly mm. there's very similar levels of consciousness but we recognize a hierarchy you know with, with right. ro- rodents and um and, and larger mammals but we go down to to avids and to to insects and things like that and we pretty much reject the conscious experience and those but they've still got very similar physiologies they've got brains which are linked to to muscular skeletons etc and and they they motor along in much the the same way where we share an awful lot of dna if atoms and consciousness are are so bound together why do we have such a range of conscious experiences across the animal kingdom yeah, so I think a lot of this has to do with as humans, something I admit about human nature, we like to like place ourselves as though we're like this super special little beings of earth. Um and th- and this is where I have an issue with dualism as well, or Descartes' version of dualism at least, where he he would like to say that animals like the reason we can observe that type of stuff. I, I maybe I shouldn't have tri- I think Descartes said something like this. I might be wrong. Some form of dualism has said something like this, but they, they want to say basically those are less complex souls. And to me, that tries to create this, this hierarchy about, you know, the conscious experience of like what's better, what's worse. Because as humans, we also assume that intel, like intelligent I don't know, is the right way to say Maybe say intelligence, but like also just that, this idea of like creating ideas and creating something new and stuff like that. I would call that a version of intelligence. Um, and we, we observe that animals don't necessarily have that. But we also can't assume that having this intelligence, being able to observe the world in a different way, we shouldn't insert our values upon that. Because at the end of the day, I do think values are just created by us. So we insert those values and say, oh, it's like this is more complex and better. But really, it's just different. And, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated by octopuses. <laughs> they have a very complex mm, conscious experience. And it's very different from ours. The way they have their sensory experience or basically their whole body is a mind. But it's also like the thing that they touch the world with. Very fascinating. So like when I when I see something like that, I just see okay, that is a very intelligent little being here, but it's just different. Um, and the reason you know I, I kind of shit said why I dismiss dualism, but I still see panpsychism fitting that because it is at the end of the day it's just a different combination of those physical those actual physical laws and those psychophysical laws that create these different conscious beings. It's not we. I don't want to try to create this hierarchy of saying, you know, that that conscious being is less conscious 
It's really just us creating this kind of subjective value structure that doesn't necessarily exist in nature. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the answer. I'm, I think that's where I probably have an issue with panpsychism is I, I see that, that, that level, um, I think for, for me anyway, but then I'm biased towards materialism anyway. So I would say that it benefits materialism. wouldn't (laughs) I? You know, I need to find, I need to find a way to neutralize the bias so that I can say it with certainty. Thank you, Brendan. I've, I genuinely didn't expect us to fill two hours. I thought, oh, Andrew won't be on the call. It'll just be me and Brendan. We'll get things done. We'll motor through and inside an hour <laughs> and a half will be done. And look at that. We've blown through two hours and, and not yeah, noticed. I'm great. I've genuinely enjoyed this conversation. I've, I've learned, as I've already said earlier, it's been really useful for me. I'm going to look forward to new episodes of your podcast. I'm not a dip in and run off again. I'm genuinely going to stay a subscriber to your podcast awesome. i like the way that you you explain things you you do it in a very clear way without being patronizing and I, I like the humility that you've said in in some of your episodes where you've said i have this current position and it's my current position you know you've clearly right. said that you know if, if understanding or evidence or whatever changes you'll reassess your position you haven't gone that's what it is and i'm nailing that so I really like that. And what I really like about your podcast is the question that I wanted to ask you right at the end was, and you're going to laugh when you hear this because you're going to know why I'm laughing at it too. The question I really wanted to ask you at the end was, do you enjoy The Good Place and do you approve of its handling of philosophy? <laughs> oh, that's that's a good question. I So I have to admit, I haven't like finished the last season. Um, oh, have you not? It's the it's the best season to. finale, the best series finale of any series I have Do ever I, watched. You you've convinced me that it's going to be on my next couple weeks schedule is to finish that last season. Um, but yeah, when I, when I was starting it, I was fascinated by it because you know it's it, like and then I like of course from this when when they started inserting all these like f- philosophical topics and then it started like triggering all this stuff in my mind. I was like whoa like they're getting they're getting into some deep stuff about philosophy along with this comedy stuff and of course i I looked up and they you know they basically were directly talking to philosophers i forget his name what's his name um his last name's may he he wrote like the book i think death or something i don't know if you know what philosopher i'm talking about i know i don't i'm afraid i wish i remembered which one anyway a very a very prestigious uh philosopher around morality and and death and he was like basically directly helping them with the show. I was like, all right, I definitely need to watch this because you like I knew that they were going to try to stay good with works of philosophy. And the the trolley problem episode was oh, probably I one of my favorites. That. I love because the I've way never they treated seen, that. <laughs> yeah, because oh you, you just like triggered a memory of mine. So the reason I love that episode so much is because not only did they make some good commentary about the trolley problem. But they also made some commentary about how, yeah, the trolley problem is is a good way to like understand how complex these moral decisions actually are because it actually yeah. gets down to something about your feelings. Like the this the oh, I forget his name the the philosopher dude Cheedy. that's that's yeah Cheedy <laughs> that you know, poor he, guy he really does poor, get tormented, doesn't he? <laughs> Yeah, he loves Kant and all this stuff, and he's got all these moral theories figured out. He wrote this big text, and he's got it all figured out. 
But then when it came down to acting, there was something different about you can't just look at it through a purely rational perspective of what ethics is. You have to understand what it feels to commit those ethical acts. You yeah. have to feel what it's like to make those decisions. And when they when they made it hard for like this ethics philosopher to make that decision, I was like, this is beautiful. Not only is it a good commentary on why the trolley problem is helpful, it's commentary on why the human condition of making ethical decisions is difficult. And I loved it. It was great. Yeah. One of my favorite I, episodes. I, I enjoyed your your episode where you've talked about the philosophy of the good place and it's not the only tv program where you've talked about the philosophy of the tv program so listeners right. yeah. if you don't subscribe to the philosophy guy go and go and do so enjoy some of the back episodes so why did you start up your podcast sell your podcast and your brand to the listeners if i haven't already done it for you yeah i mean yeah if you just search the philosophy guy um you'll you'll find it also i'll send you over the link to my uh, podcast website. Um, and I'll put yeah, the I, notes. Yes. Yeah. So I got, I got fascinated basically weirdly from, <laughs> from talking to me now, you probably maybe don't get this impression, but I actually started in the political philosophy side of things. I was fascinated right. by politics. I was a political science major in college. And then I decided to hop on and get a philosophy major as well. Um, but basically I started taking like political philosophy class. Cause I was like, okay, like, we have all these perspectives on politics, but I want to understand it at a deeper level, essentially. And I was like, philosophy seems like a good place to do that. And then I took one of those classes, and I was like, damn, this is fascinating because it was like a class you got to discuss. It also made me realize that we have some issues with our education system in college because we need more discussion classes like that. But <laughs> um, so yeah, I just started taking those classes, and I became – more curious and more curious and i got out of college and i was like philosophers make terrible money um so <laughs> i was like i don't know if i want to go down the purely academic route I, so i started doing this and yeah and, and i guess to explain is like people will see my content and realize i don't i like the nitty-gritty of philosophy but i also recognize the importance of making philosophy and and thinking about the world and thinking about meaning and purpose and understanding our experience, that is a, I think, a necessary thing that more humans do. And I feel like they want to do, they just don't know where to get that stuff. They see, they, they read these old texts and they're like, ah, oh, this, this shit's boring. I don't want to listen to Socrates use his weird language preferences and try to understand what the hell he's trying to say right <laughs> not everyone wants to do that <laughs> so yeah. i try to like i try to make it and that's where i need to get back into doing this more but i try to apply philosophy to this entertainment aspect of things but also just trying to pull ideas and try to apply them to the world and try to apply them to kind of the human condition and that's why recently i you know consciousness has been a, a thing i've been fascinated with recently because i think it's kind of foundational people's understanding of the world, but also this idea of spirituality and meaning and purpose and bringing in psychology. So basically just trying to, I guess this is a long winded answer to say, I try to make my podcast about relatable to everyone and just have a discussion about the human condition and trying to understand and remain curious about, you know, what the hell is going on basically. <laughs> um, so yeah. I try to make each episode so that, you know, you can go into it 
and you don't need to know or have read a bunch of stuff or have listened to all my other episodes. You can go into it, and although maybe some stuff will be a little confusing, it'll leave you with something to think about, and that's my goal. I think you do it very well, Brendan. Thank I, you. I appreciate and, that. And I, I'm obviously and I'm definitely going to check out your podcast as well. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you. We're, we're really relatively new. Um, we're, we're relatively new, so um, uh, but yeah, thank you for that. Hopefully, there'll be something that you'll enjoy. Uh, we, we we don't do as much philosophy as you do, obviously, um, but um, there is. I'd like to touch on some philosophy because I'm not philosophy trained. I'd like to understand more and learn more. I've achieved that in in this episode. So thank you once again, listeners. Pop over to the philosophy guy. Enjoy the content there. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this episode. You'll hear more of Brendan over on his episode. I'm recording some more for this podcast over the next few days, but they'll, I'll be waiting probably a couple of weeks between the episodes. So there'll be more coming up on Proscenium over the next couple of weeks. One of the ones I'm doing next week is on the current race riots uh, going on in America. Ooh, it's um, interesting. I'm yes, I'm I'm going to learn that uh, a, a lady who who I've got to know a little bit over the, the past year. Who lives in Minneapolis and she's been looking and visiting some of that oh. and she's come up really emotionally fired up on what's going on there and she says white people there's lessons you need to learn so I'm talking to her <laughs> next week and I'm going to <laughs> learn a lesson uh, in in that uh, in that episode or at least I anticipate that that's what I'm going to learn so anyway thank you Brendan have a wonderful rest of your day. Have a great weekend. And maybe we'll catch up uh, online again in the next few weeks. You as well. And yeah, feel thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the convo. I always like when these interviews flow nicely and stuff. And and that, and I like, I, I really enjoyed the, the more laid back, non-combative. I don't like to debate. I just like to have conversations. So yeah, it was a wonderful conversation. And I'm really glad you had me. Excellent. Thank you.